Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. First, the news. Nothing too much happening here, but Kathy Morse and I did put out our third recap of, se- of season six of Orange is the New Black, and this week is my birthday. Aside from that, let me take a minute to preview this week's episode. I think it's fair to say that I'm a criminal justice reformer, which means that I generally tend towards suggesting legislative fixes of a broken system. It is important uh, to mention and to take note of another large segment of critics of our criminal justice system, the prison abolitionists. These are people who believe that the system isn't broken per se, but rather is working exactly the way it was intended to work, to hold down, control, and often brutalize people, usually people of color. People who believe that the justice system, that to have a just system means dismantling our current unjust system, or a system that is unjust by design. Okay, let's get to this week's interview. Jared J. Ware is a prison abolitionist, freelance writer, co-host of the podcast Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, and producer of the Beyond Prisons podcast. His work has been published with Shadowproof.com, The New Inquiry, In These Times, San Francisco Bayview, Workers World, Off the Record, and Hampton Institute. Hello, Jay. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, so that's a pretty impressive bio, but what it doesn't really tell me is your story so much or about how you came to the work. Can you take us into where you started and how you ended up an activist around incarceration and prison abolitionism? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, it's sort of a long story, but I, I can kind of summarize it, I think. We've we got um, plenty of time. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think for me, there were multiple periods in my life um, that sort of drew me towards this trajectory. Um, and I think there were periods where I, you know, different things were going on and I was sort of not as invested in it. Um, and so I think what for, you know, growing up, I, um, you know, both of my parents were teachers. Um, but my father had a somewhat radical background, um, in the sixties and seventies. He, Um, In the late 60s, he co-authored a book called Institutional Racism in America, um, and he was an organizer on uh, at his in graduate school with uh, students for a democratic society. Um, And uh, so he um, certainly instilled in me, you know, kind of an understanding at a basic level of institutional racism, um, which I don't think is growing up with white parents, I don't think that that is common for everybody from my experience. Um, And so that was always something that I was, um, I thought about that I was interested in, um, that I wanted to study and that's something that I was interested in um, trying to combat. Um, And so, you know, the next, I think, important point really didn't come until after college. So right after I graduated from college, I was living in New York City and I got arrested um, and I didn't end up doing any time in prison, Um, but I was arrested on completely false pretenses under like numerous violations of just sort of basic understanding of the law that I had at that age. Um, 
And um, what I saw, though, was that that didn't matter, was that the police where I was, which was in um, Southside, Jamaica, Queens, you know, they really didn't care. And so I was basically um, a bystander. So I was in a car um, with, you know, the driver of the car was an African-American. Um, and basically they just pulled us over just on a whim, essentially, and um, pulled us out, searched the car, um, found like a roach, a little tiny bit of marijuana in the ashtray. Um, in Mar in New York City, it's also not illegal to have marijuana of less than like an ounce. Um, but, you know, that didn't matter. And so there was all of these things and they didn't, you know, they'd search the car without our permission. They didn't, you know, read us or rights, just sort of basic stuff. And then what I watched, though, as I rode through Southside Queens that night was just how they were just systemically violating the rights of every citizen that they came across. Um, and so basically what I was just witnessing was broken windows policing, yeah. right? It was just like, um, you know, this and, and I grew up in Southern Oregon, so it was like completely <laughs> foreign to me, you know, um, and um, so that was like very that was in a very important moment, you know, and, and I I came out of it. I ended up I ended up accepting a plea on the situation because it would um, keep me out of you know, trouble. And, you know, I had a year, if I didn't get arrested again in a year, it would go away. And it did, um, you know, so it was that it was a very like, but, but what I saw was like that there were all these other people that I met there that were like caught up in this and they were all just like working class, like just regular Joe's. I mean, as much as there's a regular person, right. There was nothing, there was nothing that out stood out to me as a human being that said that, what these people are doing is some horribly criminal thing that should be punished, that they should be, you know, and it, it didn't make any sense to me from that. Standpoint. Yeah. I had, a, I had um, a very similar set of experiences because I was very educated in uh, criminal and constitutional law, but had never seen the practical implications of it up close until I was arrested. And then I was walking around the courts and, you know, because I had to be there for hearings and stuff and just seeing things that were just unbelievable to me. I think the example I give the most is seeing dockets where public defenders were defending 30 cases in a day, the same ones. And mm -hmm. uh, just how shocking all of these things were to me throughout the whole process certainly informed a lot of my activism. So where did you go from there? So, yeah, I mean, really, initially, I was very angry, and I actually had a very reactionary, in my view now, um, response to it, which was like, we need to have cameras everywhere so that we can monitor the police, you know, which is like, um, you know, it's kind of ironic, because I think that's sort of where we went somewhat later on in terms of body cameras, which I don't, I have not found personally, and I think others agree that it hasn't been necessarily produce change within the system and it has offered, you know, given a new surveillance tactic to police in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily do anything um, at that point. Um, I tried to stay out of trouble. I was starting out my career. I got married a, a year or two after that, um, had, a, had my first son. Um, and so I was really involved with my family at that time for a few years. And, um, it wasn't really until, um, you know, the whole incident um, with we're actually speaking today on the four year anniversary of the of the murder of mm -hmm. Mike Brown, um, you know, and so Ferguson and uh, Tamir Rice and all of these um, incidents of state violence against um, young black 
men and women. Um, Don't forget Eric, you know, Eric Garner. <laughs> Eric Garner. Yeah. I mean, you know, so many Sandra, Sandra Bland. Bland. Um, yeah, for sure. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So all of that was happening and I, I became very engaged at that time. Um, we became engaged locally in doing some organizing in Southern Oregon. Um, and then, um, Beyond that, I started to really get into this habit of study um, and reading a lot. And, um, you know, I, I read The New Jim Crow. I read then after that, um, Angela Davis's Are Prisons Obsolete? Um, and at that point, I, I remember, actually, you can find it on Twitter at some point. But in like 2015, I asked, like, you know, I'm looking for alternatives to prison. Like, what's out there, you know? And um Nancy Hetzeg from um, Critical Resistance actually responded to me and gave me a couple recommendations of books to read and referred me to the Critical Resistance website. And from then on, basically, um, I've been, you know, it's been my primary course of study. And I would just add to that that in 2016, during the prison strike, the national prison strike at that time, um, I got very invested in um, supporting that at the time, I, I was actually um, one of the people that was running the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committees, or IWOC, um, their Twitter account at that time. And um, so I got to know a lot of prisoners that were involved in that struggle and have maintained relationships with them. Um, and, you know, that has been, they've, they've been my other set of teachers. Okay, so uh, interesting you brought up Angela Davis because uh, the reason the podcast is called Decarceration Nation, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, is because of mm -hmm. a lecture she gave. And uh, I reread the book you just mentioned last night before this discussion. So uh, let's uh, let me ask you then, since it's your area of study, if you could give us a little historical background of incarceration and abolition. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, that book is very foundational. It's actually been a few years since I've read it, but it um, does lay out, I think, sort of, it's it's a great primer or introduction to prison abolition and, and abolition as a broader trajectory. I like to look at it kind of as a broader trajectory because I really think that, you know, it is connected in America, especially um, with slavery and with racialized systems of control. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, that doesn't mean that that's all that it is. It doesn't mean that, um, that it is, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it is all that it is. I'll just say that, you know, it is other things as well, but, um, but there is definitely that vein that, that sort of travels through, um, and you can, and she lays that out, I think very well in that book, um, talking about the history, right. Of, um, of the sort of different types of, as does um, Michelle Alexander in her book as well, um, looking at different systems of racial and social control in America. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you can, you can broadly sort of walk through that, right, and say you had slavery, you had reconstruction for a brief period, then there was like a big reaction to that, which then brought in the Black Codes and Jim Crow and all of the, you know, disenfranchisement, all of that. Um, you know, a lot of violence, right, from white mobs and the KKK, which then led to the Great Migration, pushed people out into into cities, um, into northern cities. Um, you know, then you had 
sort of, um, you know, a couple world wars and some labor movement going on in there. Um, and then, you know, basically, um, from the 1970s on from the, you know, in the sixties and seventies, you have the civil rights movement or the black freedom movement. Um, and then in response to that, um, you start to see even with, and, uh, Elizabeth Hinton lays this out pretty well. Um, even with like LBJ's, uh, administration, you start to have basically the, um, the early kind of work of mass incarceration building, um, in terms of the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on poverty, um, all really being connected with these sort of different, um, what I guess Foucault would call the carceral, right? Um, just different ways that the state, um, you know, creates these violent systemic responses to um, to all different types of sociality that it, it can't really control. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, it had to do, I mean, the seventies, I recently was reading a book, um, that is, um, it's called days of rage, um, by Brian Burroughs, which goes very deep into all of the, um, the real revolutionary movements of the seventies. And, you know, I think that when you look at like the black liberation army, you look at the Republic of new Africa, um, you look at the weathermen, you look at these, there were, there were groups that were actually, you know, very much interested in, in a revolution in America in a quite literal sense. Um, and they, many of them, but particularly the ones that, um, were dominated by African-Americans, um, were met with COINTELPRO and the most violent sort of carceral techniques and SWAT teams came out of that rise of mass incarceration. And so, um, so that's sort of just like the history, right? The, I guess abolition, right, is um, at its core, when you're looking at abolition, you're looking at, okay, am I an abolitionist or am I a reformist, right? And I think most people that are interested in um, changing prisons are reformists. And I actually think that for the most part, abolitionists and reformists can work together on so many things because we tend to agree about 90 to 95% of um, things sometimes where we get into disagreements is about the types of changes that we want to advocate. Um, but I think that the, the abolitionist looks at prisons and says, um, well, let me say the reformer looks at prisons typically, right. And says, okay, this is a system at its core that needs to change. It's not working the way that it should. Um, and so we want to change it to, uh, to work better to make it um to make it more make it make more sense to to get it back into alignment so it's like a lot of times you hear people say the system is broken right that's a that's a kind of reformist way of looking at things and i'm not saying that to be derogatory at all i'm just saying it's sort of just sure a, the, you know logical thing to the say the notion that something's broken means that it can be fixed right right exactly yeah and so um you know an abolitionist looks at the system and says it's actually doing what it wants to do, right? It's doing, it's producing outcomes um, that it is. I mean, you know, at certain times, I think we can look at it even from an abolitionist lens and say there are, uh, there are intended outcomes and there are unintended outcomes. Um, and, you know, and certainly I think with prisons, um, I think sometimes people put things in play from uh, a political perspective, right? Not knowing how bad what they're about to do really is. Um, but 
the abolitionist, I think, looks at the, the core of the, of the prison institution and says, this is a bad institution. This is not how we should respond to the issues that we're trying to respond to. Um, and so then they, they usually do two different types of things. There's, there's abolitionists that work on um, alternatives and imagining a different future and, um, and like uh, building all, yeah, like people that are really interested in, for instance, restorative justice or transformative justice work. And they're trying to figure out a new justice paradigm that could potentially replace what we have, which is a punitive justice paradigm. Um, and, and then there's also people that are abolitionists that are interested in like either dismantling or just like destroying, destruct, you know, like sort of, I call them, um, insurrectionary abolitionists, people that just want to sort of blow it up. Um, you know, and so you can think of different historical examples of those, like, um, in the slavery era, like John Brown, right. Or, um, Oddly Harry. enough, one of my favorite historical figures. I... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually, so there's this, for me, like one of the things I think is most interesting, right, is there's a lot of theory about prison abolition. But I think the most interesting aspect of abolition to study is the abolition of the people who have actually directly challenged these systems, right? And so, um, and, and I mean that in the most direct way. So Harriet Tubman, John Brown, Sojourner Truth, like people that were trying to figure out how to literally get people out of bondage. Um, and I think that, you know, well, that metaphor may not work perfectly within prison abolition. I think that there's a lot of abolitionist work that is around that, right, is around. Um, and there's a, that's another place where a lot of times reformers and abolitionists do work together because for instance, like the movement against um, life without parole or juvenile life without parole, part of that work is actually getting people out of prison that have been in there for way too freaking long, right? Um, yeah, we did, and, did an episode on that not so long ago. Yeah, so I mean, those are those are both examples, and so that's that's what's interesting, right? Is that I think you can work side by side, but then it's 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 really about how you see it, and it is about the sort of analytical underpinning of what you're doing. Okay, but you said there are a bunch of different kind of abolitionists, but I didn't hear you say which kind of abolitionist you were. Yeah, so I, what I see myself as is um, I, I see my role as highlighting and elevating um, the story and the message of those who are actually trying to, um, mainly from those inside that are actually trying to change the system from the inside um, or, or, or dismantle the system from the inside, to use their language. Um, and how does that function exactly? Well, I mean, I think the best example of it is the sort of um, legacy recently of prison strikes. Um, and I think that there's a, you know, there's a long history of prison rebellion um, in the United States, um, probably most prominently in most people's minds is Attica, um, but certainly many afterwards. And I think the, the tricky thing about that, right, is that I think that um, incidents like that can lead to two different um, responses, right? They can lead to um, a sort of increasing of the like kind of fascistic nature of the system, which I think did happen after Attica, right? I think the system clearly happened after Attica. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and that, but I think then there's the other side, right, where it's like what we're having now is um, you have prisoners that for the last few years um, have really looked at a variety of nonviolent tactics, um, but nonviolent direct action, right? Looking at ways that they can um, can actually, um, you know, either stop in the case of work strikes, like trying to actually stop the the labor that's happening at the um, at the prison, um, you know, under different sort of theories about that. One of them is like basically that um, prisons tend to function uh, on inmate labor partially, if not, you know, to some significant degree. And so if they can organize a coordinated work stoppage, then basically the prison kind of grinds to a halt and um, and then there are profiteers that are involved with prisons um, in many places. And so um, trying to hurt their their piggy bank. Um, and then I. OK, that actually yeah. gets me to an interesting point. Uh, so there's some theoretical underpinnings. You already mentioned Foucault. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where do you place? Uh, do you see abolitionism? Where do you see on the spectrum kind of the interplay of power the struggle against capitalism, uh, the gendered aspect, uh, you know, from a theoretical perspective, where do you come from? Well, so I am certainly an anti-capitalist myself, um, as my podcast name probably hints to. <laughs> um, I well, just just to clarify, when you say anti-capitalist, what what does that mean to you too? Because there's a lot of these terms. Become... Yeah, so I mean, what it means is that. I see the current state of world economic affairs um, as a, and political affairs as a system that is actually destroying the ability for human beings to continue to survive on the planet. Um, so I actually view the environmental crisis, right, as some people would call it, as um, very much a crisis of basically a a way of life that is based around um, super like a, an extremely high amount of consumption, an extremely high amount of waste, and an extremely high amount of destruction of the environment. Um, and so, you know, Fred Moten uses the term often like we are living in an ecological disaster. Um, and so, I think that if we do not change the economic and political relations of our of of the United States, particularly because we're kind of, in my view, in the view of many people, um, a world hegemon, right? And so we control basically. We are in an imperial force, you know, both in terms of our army, but also in terms of of economic relations um, all around the globe, and and control so much of the way that the world system functions. Um, so I don't personally. I believe that if we do not tackle that, and I know that seems like a huge, <laughs> a lot of people that pushes them to sort of a pessimistic place. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. So um, I know that is a huge monumental task, but I believe that if we do not face it head on, then we can't change that trajectory of, 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 the, of history, basically. And we will end up basically wiping ourselves out. Okay. Um, so that's the macro. Yeah. Now, where, where does prison fit into that? Yeah, so prison, I think, fits into it on a number of levels. I think one, um, you know, obviously the prison industrial complex um, is is sort of a 
there's a couple of things, right? So um, prison fits out of a logic start as a sort of starting point, right? Um, it fits out of a logic of uh, capitalism and settler colonialism. So it, it it's primarily something that was brought about by Europeans. Um, and it was brought to places in colonialism. I saw a quote the other day that was really telling to me that it was talking, this was from Kenya, right? Um, and they were talking about how prisons are not uh, an institution that came from Africa. Um, the first prison in Kenya was built in 1911. Um, you know, and, and so... The point just being is that a lot of times we have this view, and Angela Davis talks about this a lot too, right? And this is this is how hegemony works, um, that we've always had prisons, right? And that prisons are the way that we deal with um, people in society, that there's no other option except to like put them away. And um, the truth is that like prisons are a very recent phenomenon in terms of human history. Um, certainly in terms of, um, I don't want to say that there were never prisons, right? Because you can find historical examples of prisons back sure. for, for years, but, think, yeah. but certainly in terms of like mass, like putting people in penitentiaries on, on the whole. Um, so it's based in, you know, this logic around um, Fred Moten uses this quote, which I love, which is, uh, you know, the settler always thinks that he's defending himself. It's why they built forts on other people's land. You know, and so there's this logic of control um, that is very much tied up within Western civilization and Western society um, that basically says, like, if something is too different from you or different from what you want to create as a civilized norm, that you have to you have to, like, lock it up or control it or kill it. Um, and so I just think that that's a fundamentally flawed way of looking at things. Okay, so maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but I think the vast majority of people in the United States seem to believe that prisons and jails are in a, despite what you just said about it being a relatively recent phenomenon, and what Angela Davis talks about as being it originally being a progressive move away from uh, much right. more brutal forms of punishment. For whatever reason, we seem to believe now. Uh, I think, as a collective society, that whatever is wrong with prisons, that prisons and jails are in a sense inevitable. So how do we as activists start having the conversations uh, necessary, you say you're an optimist, to start, you know, in a sense, what John Brown did was literally create a revolution around a certain event. A lot of people suggest that what ultimately became emancipation would not have been possible without what, without what John Brown did. So how do we, what are we going to do to radically widen the window of what's politically possible? Yeah, so um, that is one area where I do think that I don't know that I agree with that analysis. That's fair. <laughs> um, that it wouldn't have been possible without John Brown, um, because my view of the abolition of slavery, and I, this is an important, I think, point just to make quickly, is like I, I believe in the W.E. Du Bois Black Reconstruction version of how slavery was abolished. So I actually believe that slavery was abolished because of the people who were enslaved were constantly rebelling against it. And when the Civil War finally did occur, um, you know, that it was the slaves themselves that actually withdrew their labor from the plantations, um, 
kept going up to the Union Army camps, kept helping out there, forced their way over time into the ranks of the Union Army, um, and then were a massive force involved in actually literally fighting for their own liberation. So, um, you know, I think that that that's not the version of Reconstruction that gets told <laughs> in schools um, for, I think, a, you know, a reason of trying to sort of control this view of history. Um, but I think that I actually, that is part of why I believe in prisoner-led movements um, and why I believe in supporting them, because I think that the a thing like a prison strike has the opportunity. We look at, we'll give the example of the hunger strike that occurred in California back in 2013, I think. Um, you know, it was able to bring to bear significant conversations, some changes that have struggle because of the way that the system is and how much it rejects change or tries to sort of regulate change um, in solitary confinement. Um, and so my point is just that I think that that prison strikes are something that has an example, um, has the ability to get masses of people interested, right, in how inhumane the conditions of prisons are and how inhumane the institution is, right? And I think that that's fundamentally how we get people to move beyond um, looking at prisons is by, by understanding that as unrealistic to them as the prison seems, um, that- You mean, the, yeah. Sorry, as un unrealistic as abolishing the prison seems to them, right? That- the 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 prison itself as an institution is 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 so in, unrealistic like it makes no sense and yet it exists right and so um you know i think in terms of on a one to one basis how do you have those conversations um i think a lot of it is listening to people and then you know kind of just probing them and trying to understand what it is that they think that the prison does um and and you know who they think it is saving them from um, versus who they are not saved from at all. That's an excellent lead into my next question. So uh, I think most folks would respond to that. I mean, most folks who aren't already in our kind of different camps here sure. uh, would uh, say, well, the answer to that is to protect us from the violent folks. Mm -hmm. So I'll just ask that. What do we do about the violent folks? I mean, obviously, as the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, I think there's two parts to that answer. One is uh, we aren't doing anything about the most violent folks. And, and, that, and by that, I mean, we're not doing anything about the, the, the Donald Trumps of the world, the Jeff Bezos of the world, the, um, you know, all of, we're not doing anything about billionaires. We're not doing anything about uh, the U.S. military. Um, we're not doing anything about the Israeli defense force. Um, and so the, well, would you say, I think a really good example recently of, of, I think we have this weird kind of way of looking at the world, but I think, a a really good example of that recently was the child separation policy. No, I mean, right. I think if any of us were involved in something like that, we'd be in prison right, forever. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is one of the things like I always get, you know, human trafficking, for example, right. Is a great issue. Like people always it always gets talked about, right, in the notion of like these sort of 
um, these gangs, right, that are moving or, or ISIS or somebody that's moving people and, um, you know, and it's not like these things don't exist. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not like some rose-colored glasses, like, you know, I, sure. I, there's evil in the world. That's, that's not a doubt. Um, but, you know, we don't talk about the prison system as a human trafficking system, but that's what it is, right? Like, I mean, it is, it is, I, I had a great conversation with an attorney once um, when we were, I was doing an article on Geo Group um, and, you know, he Everyone's was- Everyone's favorite. Yeah, he was doing, he was a part, uh, his name's Andrew Free, um, you know, and he's a part of the uh, the litigation. There's a class action lawsuit against Geo Group for slavery, right? So it's a, it's a class action lawsuit around the Trafficking Victims Protection Act which is an anti-slavery law. It's a federal law. Um, And, you know, I just sort of talked him through these things, um, you know, and he's, he, he was ready for the conversation, you know, and, um, you know, he just was very adamant that, um, you know, if, if, if I tell you to do something and you can't really say no to me, because if you say no to me, then you're punished for it. Then, that's human trafficking like that at that at a fundamental level like that you know like even the idea like he used to he used the analogy that if um if there were slaves on a plantation but all they had to do was just keep up the plantation then that's still slavery right and sure so, you know i think that but that's sort of the way that like that's the argument that geo group or the U.S. government in operating its many more prisons than the private prisons, right, um, is that like, well, they, they just have to keep the place running. They have to keep it clean. They have to do, there's a thing called the housekeeping exception, right, um, as well as, you know, beyond like sort of the 13th Amendment. Um, there's these notions that like prisoners just need to to run the prison because it's part of their, you know, it, it's basically in, in our society, we look at it as part of their punishment and part of their quote unquote rehabilitation, um, which I always think is interesting, right? Cause you got to decide like, are you punishing people or are you rehabilitating them? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure you can't do both of them at the same time. Um, Unless you know. you're a sadist or yeah, exactly. a masochist, so, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'm sorry. I know that I'm kind of wandering here. Um, well, here I can, I can get us back. Yeah. Cause I think you've hit on the main point, which is which violent folks. So yeah, I think we got yeah, yeah. that. So but the one. second question is, all right, so, so fine. We've, yeah. we, we will definitely both agree that how and what we decide is worth punishing is questionable. Okay. Right. But what about the violent folks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I think that, you know, I think that people need alternative ways to protect themselves from violence, right? And I think that um, that is actually a huge project because I actually think this is also the way I look at, um, you know, anti-capitalism to a certain extent. Like if we ever had a capitalist revolution, right, and we and we overthrew the capitalist system, um, you know, then then we would have to be able to defend an alternative to that, right? We would have to be able to put something else in play and and defend it collectively. Or um, or we could just do another Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, couldn't resist. You, yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah, exactly. So you have to, you have to defend, right? Like you have to, self-defense is an important thing. Um, and I think it's in, in a, and so I actually think community defense is something that we don't 
focus on as a society. Um, but I think that that's an important principle. Um, and so, you know, if somebody is harmed, and this is an important thing I just want to touch on briefly, is like abolitionists tend to look at harm as opposed to crime, because crime is something that's like decided by the state as a way to sort of manage certain types of behavior. And it is, as we were talking about, like who gets punished, it's very arbitrary and it's just decided by who's in power um, as to what is a crime and what isn't a crime. And there's some things that are, you know, make sense to be crimes, right? Or makes, because they're very harmful. Um, and there are other things that don't make sense to be crimes because they're, the person's only harming themselves, you know, um, or they're not harming anyone. Um, there's plenty of people in prison that fit into both of those camps as well. Um, or they're, or they're like sort of harming an institution that has way more power and should be supporting them in better anyways. Um, but so back to like violence. So let's talk like, I mean, I think it's important to talk about murder. It's important to talk about rape. It's important to talk about sexual and child abuse um, because those are the things that people are actually concerned about on a, on a deeper level. I think one, I think the way that we talk about violent crime is absurd in our country because I think we lump a lot of things in with violent crime um, that are not as bad, honestly, as we make them out to be. Um, and that's not to like, um, it's not to diminish violence because I think violence is not good. Um, but I think that, you know, there are all types of violence that exist in the world. Um, there's, there's maybe that would work better if you gave uh, some examples of the different scales you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, so, so violence, you know, like you could have something like assault, you could have something like battery. Um, you could have something, you know, there's a lot of domestic violence, right. That goes on. Um, and then, you know, there's murder, right. There's, um, there's, but, but so there's, there's this whole range, right. And a lot of that stuff, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that you don't have to deal with it. That's an important thing to say. You do have to deal with it. But there are other frameworks of how to deal with violence, right? And so back to sort of that comment, right, about Kenya and their first prison being in 1911, they were dealing with violence as a society before that, right? They just didn't put people in prison for it. Um, and even as Angela Davis talks about reform, you know, some of the ways that we dealt with crime, even as Europeans, they might seem like really archaic and like kind of gross and weird. But like, I'm not convinced that like being like put in a stock and beaten for a day is, is worse than being in prison for 15 years at all. You know, so it's like that. That's not to say that's still a reactionary, still a bad example of how to respond to violent behavior or crime. <laughs> I want to be clear, but yeah, still pretty much on the punitive end. It is absolutely. But, but what I'm saying is that like, we've, we sort of took that and this was like this sort of religious idea from certain sects, you know, um, the Quakers and others of like putting people in a cell and making them think about it, you know? <laughs> and it's just sort of like, it, I mean, the Quakers are now prison abolitionists. So I think like, that's an important thing for people to understand that, that one of the groups that was most central in creating the penitentiaries in America is now as an entire religion, a prison abolitionist religion. Um, and so, you know, I think that that um, is, is sort of 
part of it. But there's so there's transformative justice and there's restorative justice. I do want to note that there are other approaches out there. Um, transformative justice is more interesting to me. There's a lot of really good work that goes on in tr- with transformative justice, particularly around domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, well, let me let me slow you up for just yeah. a second. We've talked about restorative justice quite a bit on yeah. this podcast, but we haven't talked much about transformative justice. So if you'd like to define that really quickly. Yeah. So let me pull up something real quick because I am actually definitely not an expert on it. But um, Mariam Kaba is really um, the person who I think is 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 one of the people that I respect most within the abolitionist field. Um, and she works a lot and shows like the work of Insight, which is um, a group uh, of women and women of color um, that that focus a lot on intimate partner violence. She also um, works with Survived and Punished, which is about um, defending um, women who have, um, who have, and this is another example of a type of violence, right? Like sometimes people have to attack their partners in order to save their own lives, you know, because they're in such a, a horrible scenario, right? And so in our society, we typically treat that the same way that we treat, you know, there's quote unquote self-defense laws, but that almost never in the court of law ends up playing out, especially if it's, you know, a woman of color who's the defendant. Um, you know, they often go to prison for defending themselves in a, in a life or death situation. Um, and so basically though, with transformative violence or transformative justice, um, you know, it's about having a community of people around you um, who holds you accountable, um, and hold, hold the, hold the, you know, are capable of one protecting you providing like one of the key things, right. Is to get, if it's say it's an intimate partner, violence situation, getting the person away from the situation, getting them out of it and getting them safe. Um, and that's sort of where, you know, the defense aspect comes into play. Um, you know, and then the, the other process is really about accountability, um, so with community accountability, you know, you're looking to provide self, uh, provide safety and self-support, self-support, sorry, provide safety and support to community members who are violently targeted, uh, that respects their self-determination. So respecting the person who's been harmed and what they want, um, create and affirm values and practices that resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support, and accountability, develop sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behavior, creating a process for them to account for actions and transform their behavior. So that's a key part of transformative justice is actually creating a framework where the person who has committed the harm, you know, is held accountable to changing their behavior Um, and then commit to ongoing development of all members of the community and the community itself to transform political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence. So those are the kind of frames. And that's, um, again, theorized by insight women of color against violence. Um, and that can be found on usprisonculture.com, which is Miriam Kaba's website. So that, that framework for community accountability, it's not easy. Like it sounds great. Right. Um, but it requires all of us to work together as a community. And I think that's a lot of times where we fall 
you know, things fall apart with us as a society in America because we're so individualized um, that we're not as invested in each other's lives and in, in our community and, and in working together and in trying to deal with the violence that exists within our community together. And so part of that is getting people out of the habit of like calling the police every time something bad happens and mm -hmm. saying, hey, how can we resolve this? You know, um, and that can happen on a on a micro scale in a lot of different ways. Right. Because I, I mean, I I work around people. I live around people. Um, you know, people call the cops too much. It's true. They call cops when it's like totally unnecessary. You know, like some guy's outside and he seems like he's drunk or he's on something They call the cops on him rather than like going up to him and saying, hey, do you need something? Can I help you? You know, um, well, I think some people would suggest that part of the reason for that is because we've become convinced in a way that was never true before in our society that community is dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and so think, we replace I, community with power, with, a, you know, official government power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, unfortunately that is the work of the state, you know, and it is the work of the U S media US me I mean anytime you turn on the news right it's it's how many shootings happened in your city today it's how many you know drug overdoses or whatever um, and so yeah I mean we do a lot of work to teach people that um, that other people within their community are dangerous um, and that then reaffirms the need for to the to, to most people right it reaffirms as you were saying the need for the police as a need for the prison system um, because they think that they're taught that those are the responses to those. Things. So, so, I mean, it has to happen on a grassroots level, I think, in terms of changing that. Um, and then as much as possible through programs like yours, programs like ours, as much as we can create alternative media, use social media, um, and then, you know, get in and actually work together on stuff within our community, organize. So I have a sneaky suspicion. I know what the answer to this one's going to be. So we've gotten to the point where, uh, we have some things to say to people. Uh, we have some other tactics to use to try to change the system. But what we haven't talked about, except a little bit, is the problem of local economies. So in every prisoner jail, uh, or sorry, every prisoner jail kind of becomes its own microeconomy. It often ends mm -hmm. up, at least emotionally for communities, appearing to support the community that they're located in. Uh, or to support a large range of employees uh, who actually mm -hmm. sometimes are even organized in a traditional union sense to defend prison jobs. So it's kind of one thing to say we should abolish prisons and jails it's, and maybe mm -hmm. even uh, to convince some people the prison jails aren't good. But how do we get past people's fundamental economic seeming self-interest in uh, continuing incarceration in their communities? Yeah, so there's some groups that have done some really good work on this, and I'm not going to be able to name them all right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a group, I want to say this was in Indiana, um, and they did an interview with uh, Kevin Gastola from um, Shadowproof. I think he did it on, um, I can't, I'm trying to think. He has a podcast that's called Unauthorized Disclosure. I think he may have done an episode on there. Um but, you know, what they did is they got there. There are people and there are people building this stuff right now um, out there trying to build this. Like what we need is a toolkit um, to be able to fight that propaganda on a community level, because um, and these these 
battles actually go on all the time. And people have been successful um, in stopping. So in this case, I think it was somewhere in Indiana, in rural Indiana, they were trying to build a, a private prison. Um, and the they you know organizers were able to successfully organize the town against it and um, stop it from happening. And so that does actually happen, but it, it requires a lot of engagement with government. Um, you have to show up to city council meetings. You have to, you can't, you know, you, as much as I'm somebody who I, I really despise engaging with that system, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's actually really important around, around that type of organizing. If you want to actually do that, because one, like you've got to get in among the people who might want the jobs and really explain to them what it's bringing to their community, right? Because it is bringing jobs, but those jobs are not, they don't pay enough. And you're, you're bringing this horrifically violent institution to your town. The people who work there will be traumatized on a daily basis, as are all the people who are imprisoned. Um, and the, the environment and prisons are horrible for the environment. And there's an, another great group, um, fight toxic prisons that's out there. Um, that does a, has a lot of information about that, that you could definitely reach out to, um, they're on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, but you know, they look at prison ecology, um, and they have a, an abolitionist conference every year, um, about, you know, fighting toxic prisons and they, you know, can very much lay out that, that prisons are just horrible for the environment. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I mean, you, you know, and, you know, a lot of my friends on the inside are always telling me also about just how, you know, I mean, bad, bad water, bad pipes, mold, like all of these, you know, these things on the inside as well. Um, so it's just, it's a horrible thing, right? It's like, I understand on some level, people want jobs, but, um, and need jobs, like it's not, but, you know, that's part of, um, the on the transformative justice paradigm right there was that plank that was transformed the political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence right so one of the political conditions that reinforces oppression and violence is capitalism is the fact that there aren't jobs in your community other than working in a prison um when there should be right like we should have like sustainable local local farming going on we should have um we should have all kinds of things going on in towns, but we have a lot of really, because of the way that the global system works, right? And because production is mostly out in the global South and in China um, and no longer in the United States, you know, 50 years ago, there was production going on in all of the cities. And so there were jobs. Um, I grew up in a logging community. There was logging when I was growing up. There isn't logging anymore. Um, you know, so those, those things do have a dramatic shift on communities. Um, and I know that from a day-to-day -day basis, people just have needs and, you know, you have to try to work with them. But at the same time, like you also have to convince people that this isn't worth it, right? That, that what you are bringing in the bargain that you're about to make is, is like a devil's bargain, right? Like you might get a job. You're going to wish you didn't have that job. <laughs> you know, um, and I mean, I think that that stands up. There's a lot of good evidence out there, right, about how, um, you know, how much trauma corrections officers go go through. And I'm I'm not somebody that likes to talk a lot about 
the correction officer side of things because I don't have um, much sympathy for them. But at the same time, um, they're human beings and they are traumatized by their experiences there and they are breathing in all of the awful stuff that prisoners are and, um, you know, they're in this violent institution. So I, I, it's not, it's not something, you know, on a personal level, I can say that when I was at my babysitter growing up, her husband was a corrections officer and I never saw that man happy a day in his <laughs> life. So, <laughs> you know. well, you know, I mean, they're not, <laughs> I guess I'd be with you on, they're not my generally my favorite folks in the world. Uh, there were certainly some of them who were uh, very kind, I guess would be the, a nice way to put it. Uh, sure. but also a lot of them that were, uh, not kind. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you, uh, uh, kind of a drastic change of subject, but not really. Sure. Um, both of us, I think have been somewhat, uh, involved in the response to the Lee riot in South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about your kind of experience, uh, and thoughts about the Lee riot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my, res- so in terms of what my response was, um, I interviewed prisoners in South Carolina, um, after the riot. And at the time when prisoners in South Carolina were making the decision to put out a call for a national prison strike. Um, and so there's a lengthy interview that I did. It's on shadowproof.com. It was also published in different forms on, uh, several other websites, um, including the new inquiry and others, but, um, it, um, you know, I think that that's an interview that everybody should read, honestly, because, um, it really, in my opinion, is a very human perspective, um, which shouldn't surprise us. Prisons are prisoners are human beings. Um, but I think that that's important for to say and for people to understand because I don't think that society at large really looks at them that way. And that's awful, but I think that that's true. Um, and you know, so in terms of the incident itself and my take on it, um, my take is from talking to prisoners that, um, the state, there were, there were some prisoners that were at Lee that, um, had a lot of power at Lee in terms of they could give a, a political education class at Lee and all the prisoners in the prison would sit and listen. And it didn't matter whether they were Aryan nation or whether they were, um, you know, bloods or Crips or um, whether they were new African, like whatever affiliation or street organization or non-affiliation that they were a part of that they would sit together and listen to this prisoner talk about whatever he was talking about. Um, and so my understanding is that this prisoner was moved not too far from when the riot occurred. And as he was moved out, other people were moved in that had, um, known beefs with other gangs in the prison and put in, you know, basically cell blocks nearby, you know, wings of units of the prison, right? Where they're there. So you have rival, um, rival gangs essentially that are in the same area of the prison. Um, and basically violence at some point as is, as in, is inevitable when you have that type of situation at some point, um, you know, did kick off between those groups 
and they were basically locked in to fight it out with each other um, with no prison guards intervening for like seven hours. Um, and, you know, people died because partially, I mean, I'm sure a couple of people died as a direct result of the violence initially, um, but several people that died, died because they just bled out, you know, because they were lying there so long without medical attention. Um, as the CEOs sat in the bubble in case people have forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that the, so the response I want to say too, from, from the folks that I communicate with and from, you know, that article you can kind of read. Um, and I have another one that'll be coming out probably next week. So it may be out by the time this is released. Um, but the response, you know, has really been a response of, of unity from the prisoners in the vein of that, um, you know, that, that educating, that, that, that program running an educator prisoner within there that could get all those different groups to listen, um, of trying to get prisoners to actually come together and, um, and challenge the system and the, the actions that they're proposing are, um, work strikes, hunger strikes, um, sit-ins, you know, peaceful sit-ins and, um, and uh, also um, boycotts of various kinds, whether it's like commissary or phone calls or different, you know, different ways that the system can can make money off of prisoners. Um, so it's a wide range. They're using diverse tactics this year because there's an understanding among the prisoners that not all prisoners have jobs um, and that, um, you know, if you're in lockdown or solitary or whatever, you can't participate in every mode of protest. And so you need, you know, you need different options. Um, so they're trying to be very accommodating. And, you know, in my most recent conversation, um, which is not yet, yet published, you know, prisoners on the inside are very, um, they're very pleased with the numbers of states and prisons where they're seeing basically agreements to end hostilities between the various, like, you know, they call them street organizations. People on the outside would say gang, you know, but groups of people that are together. Um, And so, you know, gangs are a reality within prison. Like, I don't want, you know, again, back to, I don't have rose colored glasses about things. So you don't have to tell Um, me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I know I don't, but just for your, you know, Um, but you know, it is also true, though, that historically um, that, you know, some of the more powerful prison led movements, um, including the California hunger strike, um, that they would not have been possible. Right. If the gangs didn't all get together and say, you know what, we're going to focus on the system this time instead of, you know, being after each other. Um, and so there's a lot of that coming. And, and what they're what the prisoners that are pushing the strike are trying to get other prisoners to realize is that um that they're not each other's enemies you know that even though um they may have certain um certain reasons why they're at odds around certain things um that you know the real enemy is the the system itself um and so they're they're trying to push that um that sort of revolutionary logic um and and organize prisoners as a class, right? As is there is their language around it, right? Like as as we might think of organizing the working class, right, against um, you know the bosses and the millionaires and the billionaires. Um, they're thinking about organizing prisoners as a class 
against the prison system. And do you want and to so, talk? Do you want to talk at all about the demands? Yeah, I was just going to get to that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they have um, they have ten demands. They whittled it down from something like thirty five or something like that, from my understanding. Um, there were a lot of um, you know a lot of different things, obviously, that would be considered on the table. Um, you know, and there's things that are left out, obviously, because there's so many different aspects of the prison system. But I think, you know, their demands are focused on a few specific things. So I'll talk about them and I'll kind of try to weave in what I think they're getting at. So, you know, immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of in prison persons. So I think like right off the bat, right, they're saying this is a human rights, you know, plea, essentially. Um, an immediate end to prison slavery. Um, and within that, they want prevailing wages um, in the state or territory for the labor that prisoners are doing. Um, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, re- sorry, the Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded. Um, so this is a really important thing that I think a lot of people that have never been in prison don't understand, but um, prisoners basically can't sue the prison Um and they have to like go through all these really bad grievance policies, which may or may not be in place, um, usually aren't really in place, um, addressing grievances often to family members or the people that have harmed them. Um, and so the Prison Litigation Reform Act was put in place um, during the Clinton era, as were several of these things that they talk about Um you know, as because there used to be this joke, it, they kind of made a joke out of it about like, oh, prisoners are suing the prisons for everything. We have to stop it. Um, but the reality of it is that prisoners have very good reasons often to want to sue their prison um, because the prison is completely violating their their rights as a human being. Um, so that's that piece. The Truth in Sentencing um, Sentencing Reform Act. So basically with that, what they're looking for um, is they want all prisoners to have the possibility of parole and, and rehabilitation. Um, they don't want um, death by incarceration sentences or what people might call life sentences. Um, and, and so they want people to have a, an opportunity for parole. They want to end um, the laws in specifically in South Carolina, but this exists elsewhere. We exchanged tweets about this a little while ago, but um, there's a law that like you have to serve 85% of any sentence that you get, like you can't get parole until you've served 85% of it. Um, So they want to change that. Um, They want an end to racial overcharging, over-sentencing, and parole denials for black and brown humans. So this is about, um, and and they also want black humans to not be, uh, not have access to parole because the victim of their crime was white. And so this is a lot of getting to just sort of racist disparities that exist, particularly in the South from their language. I mean, they do happen all over, but it is more pronounced in some Southern states, Um, you know, and and so that's more about equity, right, in in how things are being doled out, um, you know, Um, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws um, targeting black and brown humans. So they want to make sure that um, gang enhancement, which is a, an important issue, um, is looked at because what that can mean is like if you're, if you have a family member in a gang or you know somebody in a gang, like it's very arbitrary how people can set upon you a gang distinction, both inside prison and outside prison. Um, and then when they have placed a gang distinction on you, your rights are immediately 
sort of reduced, you know, in how, in what they can do to you and how you can like respond to the situation. So they want that to go away. Um, no imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs, uh, which I think should make sense to everybody. Um, state prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. So that's a big push. Um, Pell grants must be reinstated uh, and voting rights for all confined citizens. So this is one of the, I think, more interesting pieces of their platform is that they're actually um, seeking the vote in and they're starting really by looking at jails and people in detention centers. Um, but they, their ultimate goal is to actually get, um, prisoners also the ability to vote. Um, yeah, my, uh, and, and my bars to ballots, uh, proposal is actually a small part of that, uh, part 10. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing, you know, and I think a lot of it, like if you boil these down, right, it's like rehabilitation, education, um, it's sort of like a, you know, a basic, basic rights campaign of, of really looking at it. And, you know, part of their reflection after Lee was um, that the dehumanization of the prison system was working, right? That it was, it was creating an environment where people were, were losing their own sense of humanity, right? And, and losing their own sense of hope. You know, I think that's a really important part of this too, is that, um, you know, I think they have an analysis that if a prisoner has nothing to hope for, then there's no reason for them to, you know, sure. to try to improve themselves, you know, and I think that that's pretty easy for folks to understand, like, on a theoretical level, but on a practical level for prisoners, like, that's really important when you have somebody who's going to be in life, you know, spend life in prison, um, or three life sentences or whatever it is, like, that person is without hope and locked in a cage. Right. Yeah. They really, they like really throwing those thousand year sentences at people now. Uh, So I guess two last questions. The first one. uh, So someone's been listening, they hear all of this, they go, that's just crazy talk. (laughs) You know, what do you want to say to that person? Cause that's kind of why I did this podcast. I have a lot of people from all kinds of. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things. Um, I don't, one, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince everyone, right? So I understand that certain people have a view of the world that does not align with mine. And I don't believe that I have to convince everybody. So if people... Oh, sure. But I'm just an optimist and I'm just... But I'm just saying, I think I I just want to make that distinction for folks because I do get people all the time who tell me I'm crazy. And it's like if to a certain extent of people hear what I have to say and they think it's that far out there, then, you know, they're probably not going to agree with me all the way. And we can agree to disagree on certain things. And we might even be able to work together on some things. Um, In terms of, you know, if they're like skeptical, but some of the things that I say make sense, um, I would just say that I think a lot of people that have come to where I've come to were skeptical um, early on. I certainly didn't until I can say until 2015, I did not ever consider the idea of prison abolition. You know, I didn't ever think of it. Um, and so I would encourage people to read Our Prisons Obsolete, which is a very, like you said, you read it last night. It's, it's a quick read um, because I think it asks really important questions um, that people, even if they're not going to be an abolitionist, should grapple with. Um, 
you know, which, which at a foundational level are just sort of like, why do we have prisons? You know, what, what, what makes us think that this is the only way to deal with these problems? Cause it, you know, again, I know that we have problems. I'm not pretending that we don't. Um, I just think that the idea of putting somebody in a cage for the rest of their life is a bigger problem right now. Um, and so that's what I focus energy on, but, um, you know, I, I guess that's, yeah, that's my response. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so last question. And I ask every single guest this because I realize that I'm pretty fallible. Uh, what, is there something you would like to talk about that I haven't covered? Um, you know, I, honestly, I would just like to use the time to shout out some people that have really helped me to learn, um, which I think actually awesome. could help a lot of people to, you know, if they're seeking out other people that are um, in this vein of thought or, you know, we all within this realm, I think, work on different aspects of it. And so sometimes my aspect is very much focused around um, prisoner organizing and prisoner rebellion. Um, and, and, you know, there are others that focus on all different types of this theory and praxis, right? And so they can speak more in depth about those things. So I'm just going to shout some people out. So um, first and foremost, I do want to shout out D and his comrades at Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, um, because they have informed a lot of my knowledge over the years and helped me to understand a lot of issues inside the prison that I didn't understand. Um, and then also, um, Benu Hannibal Ross son and kinetic justice of the free Alabama movement, um, have also been teachers of mine from the inside, um, on the outside, um, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, uh, Miriam Kaba, who's, you know, prison, prison culture on, um, Twitter. If you don't follow her, you absolutely should, um, you know, France Fanon, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is another, um, you know, really focuses on prison abolition. Um, Nancy Hetzeg, who I mentioned earlier, um, Critical Resistance. So that's a great website for all types of tools and thought and resources connected to prison abolition. And they also have a really cool newspaper that they put out quarterly that's called The Abolitionist. Um, Dan Berger, uh, Maya Schwenwar. Um, Jackie Wang, who I've just been recently reading her book, Carceral Capitalism, which is excellent. Um, and then Fred Moten is another one for me. Um, and then I just want to shout out my colleagues at Beyond Prisons, Brian Sonnenstein and Kim Wilson and Josh Breon, who's my co-host at Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. So that's my my list of shout outs. Cool. Um, and if you shoot me uh, kind of like those names so I have them all spelled right, I'll make sure they all get in the show notes with links. Sure. Uh, absolutely. So some of them I know. Some, yeah. uh, so anyway, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate uh, But thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation. Yeah, man. And soon. Yep, definitely. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. Now my take. While there has been a huge amount of movement from organizations on both sides of the political aisle, from politicians, and even from the White House to reform our criminal justice system, it sure seems that the people who actually run the system are still very much in denial about the problems with the system. 
A few weeks ago, the Department of Justice released a a letter that was so evidence-free and loaded full of scare tactics that one would be hard-pressed to question anything that Jay said in our interview about the system being designed to work exactly the way it is working. When Elizabeth Warren made a speech saying that our criminal justice system was racist from back to front, police and correctional officers all over the country came out in droves to condemn her words. They condemned her words, even though, while people of color make up about 24% of the general population, they make up about 56% of prisoners. They condemned her words, despite the fact that we know that everything, and you can look at the statistics, and I mean everything, from policing, to determining bail, to finding charging documents, to determining plea bargains, to sentencing, to parole and probation, are all to re-entry, are all systemically biased. One would think, while we were an honest nation, a nation concerned with justice, we might be so ashamed of this, this systemic bias throughout the entire system of justice that we would all be working to reform or outright dismantle this system. Unfortunately, despite all the evidence, despite all the information, We have the aforementioned DOJ letter. We have the reaction to Elizabeth Warren. We have the opposition from people like, say, Tom Cotton, who thinks mass incarceration is a good thing. And we have a recent article in a prominent conservative uh, magazine doubling down on the deeply offensive argument that it isn't that our system is systemically racist. It's that people of color are just more likely to commit crimes. This article even tried to quote John Pfaff out of context to support this dubious claim. Of course, John Pfaff's book makes the opposite argument. In fact, the saying um, in the chapter called Race Matters that this isn't true. And here's a little quote uh, from that part of the book. The little evidence we do have points to enforcement choices. It found that non-Hispanic whites actually sold drugs at a somewhat higher rate than blacks or Hispanics, at the white-black disparity appeared to be much more the product of law enforcement bias. So we have all this happening at the same time. And then we also have the separation policy, uh, the, the zero tolerance policy. What can it mean when our government commits an official act that would, if charged criminally, garner sentences much larger the 95%, I would suspect, 95% of all of the people who are currently in prison. I mean, the amount of damage done just by that policy to real human beings uh, and the, 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 the statutes that would apply if you could charge this thing on an individual level would be so much... In a, it, it, it's hard to imagine how you can defend the entire nature of how we punish people in America when our government is doing something that is doing, you know, unquestionably more damage than the damage that was done by almost all of the people currently in prison. And then we have all the evidence documented in the show notes here week after week on this podcast that prisons and jails don't make us safer, that they don't work the way they're intended that they create bad outcomes, not good outcomes, and that they make people more likely, not less likely, to commit crimes. You really, start to have, you really have to start wondering, 
why in the world we are so committed to defending a fundamentally biased, hypocritical, and almost always unsuccessful system. To wonder why, despite the fact that prisons and jails haven't always existed, our criminal justice system seems natural, justified, and even inevitable. To wonder why, despite the failures, the racism, and the hypocrisy, we continue to even export and attempt to find ways to monetize, to find ways to build microeconomies around and expand this failed system, this monumentally failed system. I do think it's fair to call me a reformer. I'm probably not an abolitionist. Uh, But I also think it's amazing that it's the abolitionists who are seen as the radicals. I guess what amazes me is that so many people oppose a radically reimagining of the system. As more than a few people have said in the last 20 years, if a business generated the failure rates that our criminal justice system generates, they would be out of business within months. But as a, as a people, almost to a person, we continue to subsidize and support and even evangelize for a model that is a total failure. As crazy as it sounds, sometimes the people we think are radicals are actually the ones trying to hold us closest to our, our, our core values. And the people who are considered the conservatives are actually the ones who are operating uh, a rogue regime, a radical regime. So while I might not be uh, or willing to go as far as, say, Jay is, and I may work within the system, I think it would be crazy not to listen carefully to his critique or to the critiques by other prison abolitionists. Our system may have been intended to work, or we may like the way it works as a people, even though it is, by all evidence, a total failure, we need to start listening to the critical voices who are explaining why it's a failure and why we need to think of a different world, a world in which justice is possible, a world in which restorative practices and transformative practices can replace punitive practices and start to make a real difference in how we approach criminal justice in the United States. Okay, as always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Extra special news, now you can talk to Alexa and tell her to play Decarceration Nation. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.